Uh, Friends, would you turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, in your pew Bibles, it is 1012. James chapter 4, we're going to read together uh, verses 1 through 12. And the sermon for, the title for this sermon is called, The Church That God Exalts. The Church That God Exalts. So once you have James chapter 12, would you stand in reverence for God, the reading of God's holy word. James 4, 1 through 12. James 4, 1 through 12. Hear these words. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. And you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has, called, that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. When I was in seminary, one of the tasks in my homiletics class, my uh, learning how to preach class, was to read good storytellers. Read good storytellers because part of the, the story, the, the work of a pastor is to tell compelling stories that are rooted in the gospel, that move the people of God to, to action based on what God has said. One of the storytellers that I, I read, his name was Fred Craddock. And somebody compiled all these stories from Fred Craddock, who was a minister of the gospel. And this is one of the stories that he told. First little church that I served was in eastern Tennessee, the eastern Tennessee hills, not too far from Oak Ridge. When Oak Ridge began to boom with the atomic energy, that little bitty town became a booming city overnight. Every hill and every valley, every shady grove had recreational vehicles and trucks and things like that. People came in from everywhere and pitched tents, lived in wagons. Hard hats from everywhere, with families and children paddling around in the mud in those trailer parks. Lived in everything temporary to work. Our church was not far away. We had a beautiful little church, white frame building, 112 years old. The church had an organ in in the corner, which one of the young fellows had to pump while Miss Lois played it. Boy, she could play the songs just as slowly as anybody. The organ was a little slow. 
The church was beautifully decorated. It had beautifully decorated chimneys, kerosene lamps all around the walls, and every pew in this little church was hewn, hand-hewn from a giant poplar tree. After church one morning, I asked the leaders to say to them, now we need to launch a calling campaign and an, and an invitational campaign to all the trailer parks to invite those people to church. Oh, I don't know. I, think, I don't think they'd fit in here, one of them said. They're just here temporarily, just construction people. They'll leave, be leaving pretty soon. Well, we ought to invite them and make them feel at home, I said. We argued about it. Time ran out, and we said we'd vote next Sunday. Next Sunday, we all sat down after service. I move, said one of them, I move that in order to be a member of this church, you must own property in this county. Someone else quickly said, I second that. It passed. I voted against it, but they reminded me that I was just a kid preacher and I didn't have a vote. It passed. When we moved back to these parts, I took my wife to see this little church because I told her of that painful, painful story. The roads have changed. The interstate goes through the interstate goes through that part of the county, so I, I had a hard time finding it, but I finally did. I found the state road, the county road, and the little gravel road. Then there, among, back among the pines, was that sh- building shining white. It was different. The parking lot was full of motorcycles and trucks, and cars packed in there. And out front, a great big sign. Barbecue, all you can eat. It's a restaurant. So we went inside. The pews are against the wall. They have electric lights now, and the organ was pushed over into the corner. There were all these Aluminum and plastic tables and people sitting there eating barbecued pork and chicken and ribs. All kinds of people. Parthians and Medes and Edomites and dwellers of Mesopotamia. All kinds of people. I said to Nettie, it's a good thing this is still not a church. Otherwise, people couldn't be in here. It's a real story. And quite frankly, it could be our story. So the question is for us, as we look at James chapter 4, what kind of church do we want to become? That's really the question that we have before us. How can we become the kind of church that God blesses and exalts. And James 4 tells us. So I think it is critical that each and every one of us listens closely and pays attention because this is crucial for us as a church. How do we not become a church? How do we not become a church that God blesses? Sounds like an odd question to ask, right? But I think that it's, it's good to ask the, the negative so that we can get to the positive. How do we become a church that God actually opposes? It's an easy thing to do. You want to know how to do it? The answer is do nothing. Do nothing. Our problem isn't that we, we aren't good at Christianity. It's that we are pretty good at anti-Christianity. That's why we need Christ. We're we're really good at becoming a church that does not reflect the beauty and the generosity and the majesty of God. And we can see that in this passage. Left 
to our own natural devices, our own ways, our own flesh, the way that we naturally live, we will become exactly what James describes in these first few verses in this passage. What causes quarrels and and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so what do you do? You murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so what do you do? You fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and even receive because why? You ask wrongly to spend it on your own personal passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity? It is fighting against God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I'll be honest, I have been to churches like this where there's fighting and quarreling. Maybe there's not murder bringing guns to church and knocking each other out, but the words or the attitudes, the tone that is in the people's lives, in the pews, is that of murder. It's divisive. And you can feel the tension in the room. As a relatively young church, praise God, we don't have much of this, do we? We have had, for the past 11 years, really, quite honestly, a very peaceful period of ministry. But left to our own devices, if we're not careful, this will happen to us. We're nothing like what James describes right now, but we've got problems. But they're not like this kind of fighting that is going on. But what would it take for us to become the kind of church that James describes? What would it take? Nothing. Left to ourselves, this will be the path that this church, our church, will take. Why? Because it comes very naturally for you and I. This is who we are. Left to our own devices, we are divisive. We're bitter. We're angry. The problem James explains is is that something within us is going on. We have passions and desires. When, When we're in conflict, it is natural to think that the problem is the other person, isn't it? It is never our fault. It is always someone else. Well, do you know what they do? I I hear this in arguments even within our own family, with our children as we talk about school, as we talk about workplaces, and we start getting our, you start getting yourself all, you know, your internal temperature starts to rise, and quickly, who do we blame? Them! (laughs) They are the reason why this is all going down. If they would have just listened to me, if they would have just done this, if this would have happened, of course, it is never my fault. But James says that is the problem. The problem is ourselves. The problem is that we want something. And it's interesting that James doesn't say that our desires are necessarily wrong. Some of our desires could be legitimate. Friendship, for support, for understanding, for example. All those things are good things, right? God has created us for relationship. God has given us one another for support. God has given us to say, hey, what do you think? And do you understand me? Those are all good things. The problem is that these desires, these passions can actually begin to war against us. And what this means is this. We begin to live to advance our own interests, our own desires. We want to please me. You want to please you. Nothing will destroy a relationship faster than this. When we begin to put our self first, people will become objects that we use to satisfy our desires. Or they will become obstacles that get in our way. 
Either way, community is killed. When we approach community like this, it is inevitable. If they, if they are objects to satisfy us, or if they are obstacles get in, that get in our way, when we approach community like that, it is absolutely inevitable that people will not, they will not meet our needs. And when this happens, James says what happens next. We get angry. We're ticked off. And he says that ultimately we will start murdering, fighting, quarreling, and coveting. That is what naturally will happen. And James says that we can hide our selfishness for a while. And we are, as Christians, we're pretty good at putting on our, our, our face mask, right? This is what I want you to see. I've cleaned up pretty good for Sunday morning. I hugged my wife. We even came in holding hands. My children are well behaved. But internally, you are burning. And we can put it off for just a while. People won't know at first that we're approaching community. In fact, I love you. I love you. I'm going to come alongside you. Because ultimately, you need to serve my needs. But eventually, friends, it will come out. And it will come out in the ugliest behavior that you can imagine. But it gets worse. What happens when we approach life with the selfish desires to put ourselves first? James tells us that it also affects our relationship with God. And it does uh, a couple ways, and both ways are really deadly. One way is that it, it affects us, is that it, we won't even be able to pray. Why would we pray when it's really all about us? When we're prayerless, it's a sign that we are trying to run things on our own. We decide what's good. And we try to accomplish it on our own. I don't, I don't even... Listen. Yeah, your kingdom come, your will be done. But listen, here's the real deal. Here's the agenda. I need this. And I'm going to work it until I get it. I'm going to manipulate and I'm going to create my own path so that I am ultimately happy. I am satisfied. And we decide what's good and we try to accomplish it on our own and God becomes an, an afterthought. When things aren't working out, we can say, oh, oh, it's not working. Okay, God, here's the deal. It becomes an afterthought. Of, oh, shoot. Rather than our greatest desire. So either we're prayerless or we go to the other extreme and we pray selfishly. So it's either prayerlessness or motives are whack. We approach God as a means to get what I want. As one author puts it, we turn God into a divine waiter. He is there to deliver our daydream to us. We touch base with Him on Sunday. We put our, our order in via prayer. We might give a decent tip in the collection plate. Ouch. But God is essentially there to give us what we feel we need. Our idol. And we get furious with Him when He does not deliver. James doesn't pull any punches. When we act like this, he says that we are committing spiritual adultery. We're cheating on God. And we know the pain of a husband or a wife finding out that their spouse is having an affair. We've, we've heard stories about that. You may have experienced stories like this. When you find out that your lover, the one that you have given your, for better, for worse, and riches, and all this kind of thing, I'm giving myself to you, and you find out that that one, that one that you love, that you have given yourself to, is having an affair? Really? We know the damage that this causes. 
It's like a bomb that is detonating, that damages everyone within its, its blast radius. And James says that is a good picture of what happens with God. When we use other people and we use God as a way to meet our own desires, it is devastating. It destroys community. It's cheating on God himself. And the scariest part is that this will happen naturally. Because selfishness comes naturally to each and every one of us. If there's any consolation in this passage, it's in the next few verses. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns how? Jealously. He yearns jealously over the Spirit that he made to dwell in us. And here's the good news. Not only does he yearn jealously for you, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. James gives us a couple truths that should really comfort us as we consider our our selfishness and how it will destroy our relationship with others and destroy our relationship with him he says listen first of all god is jealous it's often in our 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 culture this idea of jealousy is like a negative kind of thing it's bad but if that's what you're thinking i'd say that's not necessarily true there is a good kind of jealousy and it's actually very good news that god is jealous for you and he's jealous for me god cares enough for us to care for us to yearn for us to be jealous for us and our attention and our hearts our lives he yearns for you paul copen in his book is god a moral monster when he's at tagline is making sense of the old testament god he says this wife who doesn't get jealous and angry when another woman is flirting with her husband isn't really committed to the marriage relationship outrage pain anguish these are appropriate responses to such a deep violation god isn't some abstract entity or impersonal principle We should be amazed that the creator of the universe would be so deeply connected to connect himself to human beings that he would open himself to sorrow and to anguish in the face of human rejection and betrayal. God loves us enough to care when we live this way. He's not going to sit back idly and just let it happen. God, friends, God cares passionately about our relationship with him. And God does not settle for unfaithfulness. He longs, longs as a husband or a wife longs for the love of their spouse. He longs for our love. He will have his people. They are mine. I have purchased them with a price. But here's the other good news. God is gracious. We're going to look more into this in a moment, but this is the best news going on. Our our failure and our unfaithfulness does not have the last word. God's grace is the last word. God extends his grace to selfish people like us. We will never, never, we will never exhaust God's bank 
of grace. And if you recognize yourself in this passage, as I do, then this is good news for us. God is ready to welcome us back by His grace. So you remember the story at the beginning, the Fred Craddock story. How do we become become a church that becomes ugly and lacks grace and is always filled with fighting and is selfish? How do we... How do we become that? We don't have to do anything. We, we could just set the course and just go. It, we will arrive at that port with no problems whatsoever. All we have to do is to come to church asking this question, what's in it for me? That, those are some of the most deadly words that can be spoken What's in it for me? What do I get out of it? How will you make me happy? You come asking those questions, you have set a course. And we'll begin to see others as either objects to be used or obstacles to overcome. And we'll even start seeing God in that way. God, you need to make me happy. That's your job. You are my vending machine in the sky. I put in time. I put in quarters. I've got daydreams. I've got ideas. I've got passions. I put all these things in. I've given my life. I've given my kids. I've given my tithe. I've given all these. Now make me happy. We start viewing God in that way, and it is going to kill your soul. And it will kill our church. So let's not go there not go there so what is the alternative the alternative is we we know the kind of church that god does not bless just do nothing so it's going to come naturally so how how that's how every good healthy church can become ugly how do we become a church that god actually blesses and exalts and says this is my bride look at her She's, she's beautiful. She's reflecting my son. She is like a city on a hill. She's a light in the darkness. Look at my bride. How do we do this? How do we become that kind of church? One word. Humility. We can become a church that God exalts by abandoning selfishness and pursuing humility. James says this in verses 6 through six through 7, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. There are a few qualities that are more honoring to God, more conducive to community, and more beautiful and attractive than humility. When we get over ourselves, when we resolve to follow God no matter what, no matter how much it costs, when we lay down our lives for the sake of others, not expecting some kind of relational handout afterwards, but when we really give our lives for the sake of others, we get our lives back a hundred times over. It's the upside-down way that God has created this world. The way that we find ourselves is to lose ourselves. The way up is actually down. The way to become great is to become, as Jesus said, is to become like a, a servant. The way to find life is to lose it. The way to be exalted is to be humble. It's how God has created us it's his kingdom way of working it's exactly the opposite to what comes naturally to us it's the way that we become the church that god blesses but how in the world if this is contrary to our nature right my natural inclination is to want to be the a very well-known pastor that all my my uh my sermons are like published 
and I make my way to uh, the Gospel Coalition and get on the national stage, or T4G, and I stand up there with Ligon Duncan, one of my heroes, and like, dude, this, Ligon, Kevin DeYoung, look at these guys. I'm a, I've arrived. I, I've, I've made it. I've got, I might even have books. And the desire is to naturally rise, want to rise to the top, right? I, I want to be known in my church community of being that husband that is absolutely amazing, where my wife is greatly and deeply satisfied in all aspects. And I want you to think that my children are the best children in all. I want you to think that. So our natural inclination is to rise to the top. And so if God's way is the upside-down way, this feels absolutely impossible, doesn't it? How do we do this? How do we accomplish this? It's a simple yet powerful word. Much like humility, it's the word grace. Whatever our condition or our situation, God always gives us more, say it, grace. He always gives us more grace. He gives us grace to overcome our personal weaknesses. Our hedonism, our, our imploding self-centeredness, our stubbornness. God gives us grace to overcome that. He, he gives us grace to overcome just these insurmountable kind of uh, obstacles that are in our way. Terminal cancer, death of a loved one, shattering divorce, the bitterness of failure. Do you know what? He gives us more grace. There's more grace. There is also grace to do the absolute impossible. If God is calling you to sell all that you have and go to the ends of the earth to share the gospel and to take up a social crusade, whatever he asks, there will always be more grace. So if you're going, that is impossible. I cannot do that. I can't get out of that relationship. I can't get into this kind of thing. I can't move on. I want this more. God goes, I got more grace. I got, you think you can't do this? I'm going to overcome that with my grace. And I'm going to say grace upon grace upon grace. It is true that he gives us more grace. And that is there, that there is always greater grace. Grace upon grace heaped up upon each other. So James says, let me tell you how this grace works out. And i got three different ways, friends. First of all, I want to show you that with God's grace, you can resist the work of the devil. That's the first thing. Secondly, with my grace, you are able to draw near to me. And lastly, which is really, really uncomfortable, with my grace, you are going to be able to repent and deal ruthlessly with your sins. All these are acts of humility that require grace. They, they are ways of laying aside our natural inclinations, saying no to sin and pursuing and submitting to God. They are way, ways of not calling our own shots, not putting ourselves first, and each one, each one will feel like a little death to a, us at first. It's going to bite. But he's going to give you grace for that. So first, he says, resist the devil. James kind of launches into this, the first of his coupled commands by stating the negative and the, the positive sides of, the, of, of a mutual call. The negative expression is, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. The positive side is, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Resist is a military term, which, which means to stand against in combat. In combat, you do not hear much about passivity, do you? It is always active. 
This, this language suggests the parallel language that we see in Ephesians chapter 6, right? Where we are told how to prepare, uh, prepare to resist the devil. What does it say? It says in verse 12 this. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authority, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the heaven, evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, do what? Take up the whole armor of God. Put it all on. Why? Because your call as a Christian is to daily resist the work of the devil. Daily. From this we learn that the struggle is supernatural. It is up and above your flesh and your blood. We also learn that it is personal because the word for struggle suggests a hand-to-hand kind of combat. It's hand-to-hand. Swaying back and forth in this, this battle, this sweaty battle. It is futile if fought with our conventional weapons. Because we are fighting against the ranks of the devil, his fallen angels, led by the fallen princes. We are to resist the devil. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as the shoes of your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of the peace, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take on the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Put on these things, Because you are going to be doing battle. You and I, hear hear this, you and I can withstand the devil if we wear the armor of God. And it's the armor that he provides. It's a gift of grace upon grace. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Some of us, Most of us, the battle is in our mind, isn't it? Constantly. You get the chirping. Anybody? Get the chirping. Oh, you're not good enough. He's a threat. She's a threat. This isn't happening. And what does James say? Resist that devil. Put on the armor of God. And what will happen? The chirping will have no choice but to flee. For he cannot handle it. But that's not it. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. But then James says, draw near to God and he will draw near. That that is is a longing for my soul. Right? The soul-tingling truth right here is that if you go after God, He will come after you. Are you any of you familiar with the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? I love this story, the, the imagery. But while he was still a long way off after, you know, chasing after prostitutes, asking for his fa- all his father's money, for his share of the inheritance, he goes off, squanders it all, just finally says, man, it'd just be even be better to be a servant in my dad's own, own house. I'll be, just be a servant. And so while he was still a long way off, <coughs> his father saw him. As he was doing what? Drawing near. And the father was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. And he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The father smothered the prodigal son with kisses. Inch towards God, friends, and he'll step towards you. 
You wonder why you're not making much progress in your growing relationship with God? It's because you're inching. You're taking, you're taking baby steps. <coughs> you step towards God, and he's going to start sprinting towards you. You sprint towards God, and what's going to happen? He's going to come flying towards you. James is just not snatching, thank you. James is not snatching haphazard commands just kind of out of the air. He is setting us up for an ordered program of, of discipline. Live near the heart of God. Battle for regularity and discipline in your Bible reading, in prayer, in private and public worship, friends. Do not give up the gathering together. Every time you miss Sunday morning worship, friends, it is, it is the dying of your soul. And some of you go, I know. But I like this better. To which James says, Resist the devil. He's, he's, he's asking you to give in to your flesh. Draw near to God. Chase after Him. Feast at the Lord's table. Devote yourself to Christian fellowship. Cultivate every single opportunity, avenue, where you can draw near to God. And that's will be feeding your soul. Friends, fellowship with God and its consequential blessings of His fellowship with us does not just happen. We, can, we, we cannot drift into it any more than we can drift into holiness. Because our natural inclination is towards death. Your spiritual growth in Christ does not just happen when you show up on Sunday morning. It requires far more, far more work. It's a workout. It, it's a Sunday to Saturday kind of thing, only to hit repeat the next week. Which leads us to the, the third thing that he says. I, I want you to resist the devil. I want you to... to draw near to God, pursue after God. But he says that this has got to happen to make these things possible. He calls us to apply this in the way that even how we relate to one another. Because there's an interconnectedness that you and I have with each other. Look at verses uh, 10 through 12. And these, these seem kind of weird, don't they? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before God and He will exalt you. It's a way of applying our humility to our relationships. You know, he even goes on to say later on, Stop slandering and stop judging other people. Humility will mean that we will lay aside our position as self-appointed judges and leave that ultimately to God. But he says here, grieve. And, and grieve describes the, the wretched feeling one ought to experience when we fall into sin or when we continue to be in sin, when we have unhealthy and unbiblical relationships, when we long for things that are unhealthy or unbiblical, when we want to put ourselves first, our needs first, our sexuality first, our finances first, over the things of God. God says, grieve for that. Grieve it. He says, be devastated is basically a perfect expression of what, what grieving means. Be devastated over your sinfulness, over your desires. Mourn expresses the inner grief, and to wail refers to this kind of funeral kind of lament over your sin. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. 
It's a scathing denunciation to Christians who are so insensitive and so superficial that they are laughing when they actually should be weeping. Oh, everything is great! (laughs) You should be crying right now. Turn your laughter, your superficialness, into mourning. Turn it into mourning. Some laughter indicates a sickness of the soul which only tears can cure. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones noted how the awareness of sin grew in times of a church revival. He wrote this. Go and read the history of revivals again. Watch the individuals at the beginning. This is invariably the first thing that happens to them. They begin to see what a terrible and appalling thing sin is in the sight of God. They temporarily even forget about the church or the state, the state of the church, and they forget about their own anguish. It is the thought of sin in the sight of God. How terrible it must be. Never has there been a revival, but that some of the people, especially at the beginning, have such visions of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of sin that they have scarcely known what to do with themselves. They are in shock with the sin that is embedded in their lives, the things that have become normal to them. They've been lulled to sleep, and they are going, no, I have a vision of the holiness of God, and my sin has no place in this life or in the life to come, has no place for me as a follower of Jesus. Have we wept over our sins? Have you? My guess is probably no. We don't weep over our sins. They're kind of our best friends. But when we humble ourselves, and when we put ourselves first, and lay, stop putting ourselves first, and we lay our lives down before God, and others, two things will happen. James says in verses 6 and verse 10 that God will exalt us. The lower we go, the more he'll lift us up. But something else will happen. We will become the most beautiful community. We'll become the church that God blesses one that actually reflects the beauty and the humility of God himself. Who doesn't want to be that kind of church? We can become the church that God exalts by by abandoning, abandoning our selfishness and pursuing humility. When we lay down our lives, after all, we're doing exactly what the Son of God did, right? We're reflecting the very character of God himself who emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form. He humbled himself. He humbled himself, how? By becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the death on a cross. So friends, to become an ugly church, it requires zero work. No action is required. To become a church that God blesses, we need to keep looking to Jesus Christ. We need to lay down our lives for Him. We need to, let's pour out our lives in service to others. Let's not see each other as obstacles or objects. Let's Let's look at each other as people loved by God. Let's begin repenting, repenting of our selfishness by asking God to change our heart. 
And let's not pray for our selfish desires, but, but that God would make us this kind of church. James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. Purify your, your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. How can you obey this command today? How can you clean, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts? How can you mourn over your own selfishness? Well, it's timely. The church universal has entered into a time, a season of Lent. It's a preparation for the joy that we find in the resurrection of Christ. It's a time of internal introspection for individuals and a corporate time for corporate introspection as a church. It's an opportunity for us to confess our sins, our selfishness before God. So we're going to take some time before coming to the Lord's Supper and we're going to pray. If, if you need to find yourself a, a comfortable position, maybe you're the type that, man, I, I need to turn, turn around, get in front of a pew. If you're the type that needs to uh, find somebody here because you have viewed them as an object or an obstacle, now's an opportunity for you to confess your sins to God and to each other. After a few minutes, we're going to pray a prayer together. Then we're going to come to the Lord's Supper, eat gladly. We're going to sing a song as our assurance of pardon called How He Loves Us. And then we are going to go out gladly, empowered by the Spirit as the people of God. Let's take some moments to confess our sins before God.